everyone, welcome back for the second episode of Risk Factors. I am your host, Elizabeth Sherwin, and today I am joined by Nina Ahuja for a fascinating conversation about digital health and primary health care. Before we get started, I wanted to define one abbreviation that you'll hear Nina using at the very beginning. She says NCDs, and that stands for non-communicable diseases, which are non-infectious diseases, often also called chronic disease. Enjoy the episode. Hello. So today I am thrilled to have Nina Ahuja on the podcast with us. Nina received her Bachelor of Science in Public Health and Psychology from Santa Clara University and Master of Public Health in Epidemiology and Global Health from the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. So welcome so much, Nina. And uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yay. Um, thank you for being here. It's so fun to have you on the podcast. And so I thought to start, you could just introduce yourself and share about the journey that led you to the work that you're doing today. Sure. So, so as Elizabeth said, my name is Nina and I um, have a master in public health and epidemiology and global health, but my public health journey started many years ago and during undergrad when I signed up for this public health major, public health science, and was, wasn't sure what that meant, but I thought I'll figure it out as it goes. Um, and I took my first public health class with Elizabeth, actually, um, public health 101 or the introduction to public health and absolutely fell in love with this idea of helping people at a large scale um, and helping populations with preventative medicine as opposed to treatment of medicine that we is our typical idea and, and thought that we um, use when we approach the field of medicine. Um, so I started in this big world of public health and, and realized that there's a lot of different avenues that you could take. Um, and so I wanted to just get my feet wet and understand what is out there before I really picked a career path. So when so I graduated with my undergrad degree, um, I went and worked at Stanford University at the Stanford Prevention Research Center. And there I did some public health research uh, looking at chronic disease prevention. And I really fell in love with you know, NCD prevention, especially as something that is not only plaguing us in the United States, but across the world, it's a really glowing, a growing problem that it is, is something that people didn't really haven't really focused on as much globally because there's so much infectious disease and always kind of has been. Now the real um, problem is NCDs that are rising much, much more than infectious disease because we've kind of gotten a little bit of a handle on it. So I really you know felt that I found this niche of NCD prevention, but I wanted to wanted to figure out, okay, well, how can I do that at a larger scale and have more impact? Um, across the globe, which is when I went and got my master's in epi and global health. And, and now I'm working as a digital health and GIS consultant um, internationally. So that's a quick synopsis of my journey. Thank you. Yeah, it's so fun to think about how we uh, both took public health 101 together and have been on our public health journeys together since then. Um, and one thing that we have talked about, uh, as we always have our long conversations about public health, is um, epidemiology and what it means to study epidemiology and um, 
you know, what it means to be an epidemiologist since, you know, you um, studied epi and as you know, now I'm studying epi and it's a field that has gotten a lot more attention in the last year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but I think, you know, it's still a very broad field and people both in and outside of the field of public health often don't really know what epidemiologists do. So I'm curious if you, as someone who studied epidemiology, um, could answer the question of how, how do you define the role of an epidemiologist? Sure, so I think of an, uh, what I think of when I think epidemiologist is it's, it's, it's the study of, of the risk factors or the um, data behind incidents of disease in, in certain types of populations. So I think that um, a lot of the work in public health is has to be driven by the data and EPI provides that data to you know, inform evidence-based practices and policies. Um, the, kind of the other half of public health is how I put it in my mind. So, um, so EPI is really looking at and, and trying to trying to tease out the nuances of why certain diseases are at higher rates or what even at what rates that they may be in different populations and identifying those um, groupings, if you want to call it or something, something like that, where, where Epi is just really uncovering patterns of disease and population um, to, to drive evidence-based practices. And so epidemiologists, I think they can, you know, work with large data sets and doing analysis or, or, you know, out in the field. I think there are many different ways that epidemiologists can apply epi skills, but I, I also think that epi provides a certain way of thinking about research or how to form questions and um, go out and collect data. So it's, it, it is a really big term, but I think it, it, it it's, um, it's about multiple different things of an uncovering why disease happens in people. Yeah, I love how you said um, uncovering patterns of disease. I think that's a great description. Um, and I think like you mentioned, yeah, there's many different uh, roles that epidemiologists can take, often involving, you know, large data sets. But like you said, it can sometimes be more on the side of, um, you know, uh, uncovering the data, right? Showing um, how uh, different populations are affected by disease, but then it can also be on the more applied side of like, how do we use that data to then design interventions and health policies and programs. So um, I know we're probably both a little biased because we both <laughs> studied epidemiology, but I think it's a really fascinating and exciting and diverse field. Totally agree. <laughs> totally. We're both very pub public health epi excited people. So yes, <laughs> we're very pro public health on this call. <laughs> um, so now I'd love for you to share about the work that you're doing now. You, know, you mentioned um, that you're um, working in digital health. And so if you could just describe more about what you do for us. Sure. So um, I, I have been in this role for the past year um, since the COVID pandemic really, really hit hard. Um, and so my role has been using digital health tools to train remote, um, health workers remotely on the COVID-19 pandemic globally. Uh, so digital health is kind of a broad term, but um, in the work that I am doing, we, we um, use you know variety of digital tools, whether that's a basic SMS through mobile phone platform or you know app-based platforms through smartphones, whatever, 
um, depending on the digital literacy in the country and the digital in infrastructure, but using these tools to, to convey new clinical protocols around COVID-19, which may be, you know, how to identify case, um, contact tracing, teaching about home-based care, um, you know, risk communication, community engagement, how to con continue primary healthcare services in a COVID-19 pandemic, and now um, with the rollout of the vaccines across the globe. So training these health workers on all these different topics through digital platforms, because um, given the social distancing and, and potential lockdowns that are, are happening in countries, you know, health workers can't come and gather and learn whether that is like a very basic community health worker to a nurse, to um, a midwife, whatever sort of health worker you think of, um, they can't come in person and gather and learn. So how do we convey this information to them so they can still continue to do their job because health workers are the backbone of the health system. Um, so that is one, one big, big part of my work. And the other part, as I mentioned, is GIS, which is geographic information systems, um, and which is a, a tool to use um, to, to you know, map data and, and um, basically taking data and connecting it to the geographic location and seeing how, how space and location um, can impact your, your health. So a lot of the work that I've done in this geospatial world is looking at immunization coverages across countries um, and assessing where there may be cold spots or hot spots and how we can better um, identify which where gaps um, where immunization gaps exist within a country, as well as also geospatial technologies have been evolving. And um, now people are able to use drones that fly over countries and identify communities or settlements that we didn't existed and mapping those out on maps. Um, so it's been a really fun journey, you know, diving into this digital health world um, and, and using this digital tools to, to strengthen primary healthcare services. Thank you. And I want to touch on something you mentioned um, earlier when you were defining, you know, how would you define epidemiology? You mentioned risk factors, which, as you know, is the name of the podcast. <laughs> and um, and so and then just now you were talking about kind of like space and health. And I know that's something you're really passionate about and did work on at Stanford as well. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how like space and where you live could be considered a risk factor for health outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in the very basic sense, we can think about it is that you know, where you live um, impacts your access to, to foods, healthy foods, your access to space to get physical activity, um, and access to space also in the sense of getting fresh air, which is very important for our mental health um, and, and other sort of things. So we can, we, we can also think about it in, in that sense, but also, um, which is, I guess I should point out that that's kind of the work that I've done in this, the area that I've lived in, but there's also this aspect where I'm starting to um, get a little bit more background and now is that it's also looking at access to healthcare services um, and ability, if we're thinking of low middle income countries, you know, in, in maybe more remote areas, you may not have a healthcare center that is accessible, but in you may you know, interact with community health workers, but are community health workers able to even enter into that area? Um, is it accessible for the outside world where you can get medicines 
or, um, you know, like other life-saving treatments delivered to you with the vaccine, you know, think about the COVID-19 vaccine, whether there's um, ability to store it in your, in your uh, community. And so it's not also just having the physical presence of healthcare workers, but also just like having the ability to get treatment and services delivered to you. So really you can think about it space in, in many different uh, ways, but uh, the most basic level and the most experience that I've had is, you know, building access to healthy foods and, and space for physical activity and, and ability to get fresh air and for kids to go outside and be able to play um, in their backyards and kick a soccer ball around and you know release some of that energy that they have thank you yeah I think um, one of the reasons I'm always interested in talking about this is when we hear the word risk factors we often think of individual level risk factors but we know that public health a lot of risk factors are actually more at a community um, or even country level um, when we think about um, you know like you mentioned access to fresh air green space um, you know, grocery stores, all kinds of things like that. So it's definitely um, something I've learned more about as I've studied public health. And so I'm always interested in talking about that. Yeah, uh, it's a fun <laughs> field. And that's how the mapping really, um, it's it's fun to kind of use those mapping technologies to, to be able to assess that, okay, well, you know, in this community, there isn't a grocery store. So that may explain the higher rates of of you know diabetes that we're seeing because there isn't that access to to fresh fresh fruits and vegetables um, that's uh, as easy. So it's fun to kind of connect the dots, um, looking at those that risk factor of of lack of of access to fresh vegetables. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And so um, back to um, the digital health aspect of your work. I think, as you mentioned, it's a very broad term. So, um, and you know, goes by many names as we've discussed: M Health, E Learning. So, how would you define digital health? And as you've kind of touched on, why is it so important for healthcare delivery, uh, especially in low middle income countries? Yes. So, totally. I um, you kind of nailed it when you said that digital health um, is a broad term. So, it typically um, what is digital health includes M health and E health, and it's basically the idea of using digital technologies within um, health care delivery um, and just health and society overall, which I know sounds even broader. But I guess um, basically the idea is that to use the digital technologies to make healthcare delivery more efficient, to make pre precision healthcare is this new. Um, you know, fancy term, the term that everyone tries to use, but digital health supports um, precision healthcare, um, where, you know, you're, we're collecting data through digital technologies um, and allows medicine to be more personalized and precise to what we're seeing. Um, so, yeah, I think that it would, it, it basically is a, using digital technologies to address health problems and healthcare delivery. Um, and, and the technologies can include many different things. Um, if we're talking about, you know, hardware like mobile phones and apps, um, wearable devices, um, and then, and, you know, the software solutions, like I mentioned GIS, where we're, you, you know, mapping, um, using mapping technologies, whether that's through, through GPS coordinates or using mobile phones or using fancy things like drones. Um, so yeah, there's, 
digital health is a big, big umbrella um, that kind of covers all these different ideas, but the ultimate goal is to just improve health um, and healthcare delivery. Um, and to answer the second part of your question, where, where why I think it's um, important or helpful to use digital health tools for healthcare delivery and, and low middle income countries, um, I think digital health is a tool that can be used at all levels of the healthcare system. I think often, maybe, maybe in just in my experience, I don't know if this is a fair to say for everyone, but often here in 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 the United States and more developed countries, I think when you think of the healthcare system, we think of more of the higher level doctors and and high medical professionals. But in low middle income countries, that that level is is there but to a much lesser degree the healthcare system is really built upon um community health workers and and midwives and and nurses i mean and what would is defined as a lower cadre of health worker um and they're the real backbone of the healthcare system um in low middle income countries but oftentimes these people are not heavily trained like doctors or um you know, surgeons or all, what they go through, they have much more years of training experience and community health workers, for example, are, are often, you know, lay folks in the community who don't have a medical background or quickly taught something and then are expected to go deliver this healthcare to, to people in their community. Um, and they're great conduits between the healthcare system and the community. They're awesome, but they don't, um, they don't have that same level of training and expertise and, and scientific background. Um, and digital technologies can really come in and help support whether that's, you know, with training them up front, providing job aids at the point of um, healthcare delivery, or even for different, um, in different aspects like birth registrations, death notifications, um, as well as, you know, targeted communication from the Ministry of Health to, two different communities. So digital health can really come across all those different levels um, in the healthcare system. And it's just a lot broader than we, I think, imagine. Um, it goes beyond just like visiting your primary care physician or going into a, um, the hospital for, for care, for emergency care, et cetera. So um, I think that digital health is also um, a, potentially a lower cost solution. Um, which can, which also very much is important to low middle income countries and, and the boom of technology, whether that's um, in higher income countries or low and middle income countries is, is super high. So why not, why not leverage the solution for healthcare? Yeah, that's so um, fascinating and important. And um, it's making me think of the project I worked on when I was studying in Buenos Aires in uh, 20. 2014, or I guess 20, yeah, 2014, um, because I decided to do like a little research project on community health workers there. And I learned exactly what you said. I mean, they're the backbone of the healthcare system, the connection between the community and um, the healthcare system, yet they're very oftentimes very informal, like no formal education in healthcare. And so um, I always think it's really exciting to see projects that are kind of trying to bridge that gap and help give them the resources that they need to provide even better uh, patient care. Um, yeah, it's, it's 
mean, this can go on to its whole different tangent, but often you're right. Oftentimes they're not formally educated. So many community health workers are not even paid for their services. So, I mean, it's, they, they really are such an important part of healthcare delivery, but often are overlooked. Um, and that's where digital health, I think, can really help support their work. So it's, um, I could go on and on about a rant of how community health workers deserve much more, but, um, but yeah, but it, they're, I think the healthcare system overall um, is much broader than we typically think about it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I can, I would love to hear actually some examples of the kinds of, um, you know, digital health projects maybe that you've seen and how it can, can benefit uh, community health workers and, and the health system. But I can give an example uh, first too, because I just, I love talking about this because it was one of my favorite, um, well, it's one of my favorite pictures actually from um, the year I spent in um, Guatemala working with Buhu Kowak Maya Health Alliance. They have a program um, that helps train um, community midwives to uh, better identify risk factors um, during pregnancy. Um, because a lot of, you know, these midwives are um, delivering babies at home um, and that um, can be safe to do, but then there are certain times when it's really important to get the woman to the hospital if she has, um, you know, preeclampsia or um, some type of um, thing that really needs like more specialized care, really preterm delivery or something like that. And so my favorite picture is like this photo of um, the nurses from Maya Health Alliance training the community midwives on how to use WhatsApp on these smartphones that they had given them. And it's just such a cool picture seeing them all like look at their phones. Um, but the, the app that um, they developed in partnership with uh, collaborators at Emory University is really um, cool because the midwives can use it. And a lot of these midwives are illiterate and they also speak Kachikel, which is one of the Mayan languages. They don't speak Spanish necessarily, or like their first language is Kachikel. And so the app is really cool because it goes through all the um, signs of different, um, you know, red flags like hemorrhage, seizure, um, things like that. And it goes through the warning signs in pictures and actually speaks aloud in Kachikel. And so the midwife can go through and just like check, like, no, the patient doesn't have this. No, they don't have this. Um, and then they're also able to transmit data from a blood pressure uh, monitor and then also a Doppler for the, the fetal heart tones to the organization um, through the cellular network. And so then the, the nurses and kind of emergency response team from the organization can get notified right away if there is an emergency and they can provide that transportation for the um, woman um, to the hospital. So it was it's a really cool example that I've witnessed of how um, you know uh, digital health can can really save lives um, and really you know it's not a program. What I think is really cool about this one too is it's not a program that's trying to require all women to deliver at the hospital. Um, instead, it's really trying to identify like the the people who need it most um, and getting them there to potentially save their life or save their baby's life. Yeah, I think what you're that's a such a cool example. I'd love to look at that picture that you're talking about. Um, but that's a perfect way to illustrate how digital health can be plugged in anywhere in the health system um, to strengthen the health system overall and you know help support the efficiency of healthcare delivery like I was originally speaking about. Like it's the idea is that you know we're not trying to change, I guess a, to a certain extent you're trying to change, but you're not going in and you know completely re-gutting the whole system. You're 
trying to enhance the way the system works right now. And so like that example you're saying is providing that real-time data um, is really helping the efficiency of healthcare delivery. So that, that's awesome. That's really great. I didn't know you did that. That's <laughs> I'm learning today myself. <laughs> Yeah, I um, did not, you know, work too much on the pro project directly, but I got to go out with some of the nurses and um, meet the midwives and kind of see how the, the app worked. And it was really cool. Um, so, yeah. Were there any other examples that you wanted to share of how you've seen digital health um, enhance healthcare delivery? Yeah, sure. So that's a... Um... So I, I really liked your example because it kind of gave two examples in one. So at the beginning, when you were talking about how the, the nurses would, the midwives would click through, that's, you know, what we would define as job aids. So that'd be um, uh, at the point of care providing job aids. So in the olden days, um, it used to be that these community health workers used to log around these big books with them um, in their backpacks or whatever. And so they could refer to that. But now with with the digital tools, they're able to just use those job aids, a much more simplified, smaller um, piece. So there's, so you, so that was one example. And then what you were, the second part that you were talking about is like having that information be sent to, to um, the healthcare deliverers, like the the nurses or whatever. Um, uh, that would be the an example of like real time monitoring and data collection. Um, which is kind of, a, that's also another buzzword, real-time monitoring of the digital health world, um, where we can collect data at the time of care on, on risk factors and um, experiences that, that the community has. Um, so yeah, I think two more examples that I'd like to give, which I'm most familiar with is that healthcare worker training that I was speaking of, um, which is really has been a huge field that's been developing over the years, and especially with the pandemic. I mean, if you think about it, um, it's really just education that's being used through digital platforms. And we're all very familiar of how much that has been, how different education via digital tools is um, compared to in classroom based. I mean, with the pandemic, how kids have been forced to be sitting behind laptops and how that has really changed training and stuff. So, um, so that is a, going back to you know healthcare workers. Um, this field has been growing, and COVID really pushed us into it. Um, and add in the the concept of adult learning principles and how to convey that through a digital tool and how to keep people engaged. And uh, another issue is that healthcare workers often don't have that much time. So to take them away from healthcare delivery and get them into a classroom to learn new topics is a huge barrier. So these, um, you know, getting, there's a technology called IVR where people um, get recorded messages that on their phones um, where they'll, they'll get a text that tomorrow at blah, blah, blah time. Typically the health worker gets to pick the time that works for them at, you know, X time you'll get a phone call for five minutes on this module related to whatever, um, and then the health worker can just pick up the phone, listen in for five minutes, and they'll probably get an answer, question answered, um, question asked of them, and they get, you know, can punch in the right answer, um, and then that's their like, learning of, of the day um, to keep them, you know, updated on, on the new information and protocols. That is like a very growing field, whether that's through like that IVR technology or through getting SMS messages 
Um, there've been a lot of learning management systems through applications that are being developed um, where you know it's, it's an offline and online application where you can download the course when, when you're online and then you can go through offline at your own convenience at your own time. Um, so yeah, that, that's the really growing part and really depends on the digital infrastructure that's available in the country um, to see like what platform is chosen. And then another aspect is this, you know, targeted client communication. Um, that's another example where digital tools are really, can really improve healthcare delivery um, is by sending out, as often, you know, people don't get the information or, you know, at the start of the pandemic, people had no idea what was going on. Um, and so to explain to them the, you know, the importance of washing their hands or staying indoors and what that means that you can use digital technologies to, to transfer that information over to them. Um, so they're able to understand what's going on or they can, there's, you know, hotline numbers that they can pick up and call um, to learn more information. Also through radio, I um, in some countries, uh, they can use radios, although it's not the digital tools that we may think of here in the States, it's a really important digital tool in, in more low middle income countries where um, they can really re reach a wide group of people with um, targeted client information. So um, those are a couple of different examples. WHO has a digital health interventions guide, um, which shows all the different places that you can input um, digital health for healthcare delivery um, and health system strengthening. That's also interesting. I love um, the focus on um, just being able to really target um, both community health workers and, you know, end user clients or patients, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, where you where they're kind of at, you know, just having a five minute phone call during the busy day or things like that. That's or allowing you know training to happen offline since people aren't always connected to um, internet. So that's really that's really interesting and exciting to hear that that's going on. Um, and then the other thing I want to mention because I always think it's so uh, so fascinating. People can look it up to learn more. But when you mentioned radio, I'm not sure if you've read or heard about. Um, in lots of different countries, Latin America, Asia, um, they've used telenovelas. I guess in Latin America, you would call it telenovela. In other countries, you might call it a soap opera or something else. But they've used uh, radio shows and also TV shows to, um, you know, share public health messaging. A lot of times it's about HIV prevention, uh, birth control, uh, but all kinds of things like domestic violence, like, and they really like work to develop these characters to be, you know, just regular likable characters that you would see on any like entertaining TV show, but then they actually work with, um, you know, public health workers to really make sure that the messaging um, is correct and to help people, uh, you know, know that they have access to certain resources in their countries and in their communities. And it's had a huge impact. Um, it's, it's really cool to read about like the studies of like, okay, the day after this happened to Maria on this telenovela, like this many more people showed up to the health center asking for, you know, birth control. Like it, it's really cool. To That's hear awesome. About, uh, yeah. I don't know if you've heard about that, but we, we read some articles in one of my classes this year. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I didn't know specifically about telenovelas, but that's really, that's really cool. Um, yeah, I think that these, uh, these mediums, it's very important. I, I imagine that they, 
you know, the characters that they are creating are, are, are ones that, you know, the average person can connect with so they can, you know, understand. And, and I think a big part of public health is that messaging component and being able to say things, um, in a clear way that any lay person can understand. I think often in the medical field and healthcare overall, there's all these fancy terms and acronyms or so many acronyms of things. And I think it's very confusing for an average person who doesn't have much interest in health care or you know, much knowledge. And, and so public health, I think it's really important to match that um, you know, lay person and connect with them and say it in simple terms and, and actionable, like easy to do things for them, not as like another burden that like, oh, you have to go like you're running with your example, like you have to go to the health center and get birth control, you know, like don't want to burden them, but also want to convey clear messaging that can help support their, their lives and, um, and overall health and well-being. Totally. Yeah. There's so many acronyms, too many acronyms. Too many. <laughs> um, so I think we've touched on this a little bit, but um, I would love if you could just share kind of what you see as some of the opportunities and challenges of using digital health um, for health systems research. And, um, you know, I think that's related to as well, the COVID-19 pandemic, like how has that created new opportunities, but also new challenges? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So I think the challenges um, really lie with the challenges that like any sort of public health intervention or tool brings with it. So, you know, costs being the number one thing. Um, it can be expensive to introduce digital health technologies, whether that, you know, that's purchasing the hardware um, and because, you know, people um, in a remote village in Liberia may not have smartphones. Um, so, you know, purchasing the hardware, purchasing the internet, um, the, like the bandwidth, that it can be very expensive um, to just purchase internet in, in some of these communities. Um, and it's not that it's not there, it's just very expensive, people can't afford it. So cost is always the number one thing that I think is a challenge. Um, once the digital health tool and infrastructure is built, it's much more sustainable and cost-wise, but that upfront, um, upfront expense can be a, a huge deterrent. So I think that's one thing. Um, two is having digital health infrastructure within the country and whether um, that is, you know, having bandwidth, um, having partnership with mobile network operators, um, which we call MNOs, another acronym, <laughs> um, working with mobile network operators to be able to send mass messaging um, to folks, or whether that's even having digital specialists in, in country. So um, for example, if you're a health worker who's receiving training um, via their mobile phone, and if they run into a snag or something, the ability to have some sort of technical support to help them get through that um, is super important to, for uptake. If you know, if we're not able to provide any support and someone gets stuck on how to go to the next page on this app, for example, they're not going to spend the time to try and figure it out. Um, and also, one thing to keep in mind is that. Um, if we're talking about community health workers or midwives, we're, we're 
often you'll see that the popu the, that population are, are older women. So they aren't necessarily that tech savvy, that comfortable with these technologies. So how do we um, help provide them support so they don't just like pawn it off to their grandchild for them to figure out um, or, you know, just kind of leave the training. Um, so yeah, so building that digital health infrastructure um, and having countries also, we really encourage countries to have national digital strategies um, and developing all that. That's a lot of upfront work that again, people, these health systems are already overwhelmed given COVID-19 are extremely overwhelmed um, and are having a difficult time surviving and how do we introduce this new thing to them? Um, and oftentimes also it, we face this challenge of it seems like we're forcing um, this change that the countries don't necessarily want. I mean, it's introducing more work and more stress for them. And how do we, how do we present this to them as something that um, will only help their work and not provide a deterrent or more, more stuff for them to think or do about? Um, so those are a, a, a lot of challenges. And then one more challenge before I go to the positive side um, is that we here, going back to the health worker training, have been developing, we've rapidly grown with AI and virtual reality. Um, and now, for example, the WHO has released training courses on, on apps that they have that use um, AI to you know, show how to put PPE on and, and things like that, which is very, very cool and is an awesome application of new technology, but it's just so not feasible um, in low middle income countries where they're using still simple phone that has a keypad and it is very basic. So how do we kind of match this fast paced technology world um, in the Western hemisphere? How do we match that with, with the other part of the world that's still, you know, maybe on 2G or 3G, don't have smartphones, you know, aren't there yet. Um, so that bridge um, can be challenging to, to build. So, the, the, that's the downside, but the opportunities are vast. Um, I think COVID-19 and this pandemic has shown how the virtual world is a feasible way to continue things and how we can do things virtually. Um, I think there was always this hesitance towards going completely virtual. And by no means are we saying digital health doesn't promote that everything should be digitized and everything should be digital. Um, it is a balanced game. And I think that the pandemic has really highlighted that that um, that balance can exist um, and we can work this way. And I think that the pandemic also has allowed us overall to evaluate health systems and um, really has forced people, whether it's the layperson or whether it's um, you know, funders, um, research organizations, implementers, whoever we talk about, I think there's been just a huge focus on on how the health system overall really can impact us at a really grand scale with the pandemic. You know, if our health systems were stronger, we wouldn't, maybe wouldn't have lost as many lives or had as many cases and been better prepared with PPE at the start of this. So I think it's really allowed people to see the importance of health system strengthening um, and to see the importance of primary health care overall um, 
and how preventative medicine is essential. Um, and, you know, we see, I mean, this, the pandemic has uncovered so many, you know, health disparities and importance of public health and preventative medicine. If we are in healthier shape, you know, we have less risk factors for developing COVID. We have our routine immunizations. What, what all that means, I think what public health has always preached um, has really come to light. And this pandemic has allowed for a lot of funding to come in um, for, for health system strengthening and digital health. So I think it's, that's really, really exciting. Um, and how we're taking more of the systems approach to help overall, as opposed to maybe more of the disease focused approach. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's really exciting because I think the steps that we've taken is, is going to help primary healthcare overall, um, and, and help people's health and well-being improve over time. Great, thank you. And I love that um, everything you said, but that last point about taking a systems approach versus a disease-based approach, I think is so true. There's a lot of things we can do to strengthen our health systems, our public health infrastructure that will you know, help regardless of um, the disease or you know, hopefully we don't have another pandemic for a long time, but we do you know, need to start preparing for that. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean, I think you said it right there with, with saying that, like, hopefully we don't have another pandemic anytime soon, but if that does happen, we have better systems and preparation to approach it from the get-go as opposed to kind of playing catch up and that public health infrastructure is so essential. And I think finally people understand what public health really is. I think before this pandemic, people didn't understand public health is now there's some more clarity um, and the importance of prevention from the get-go. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you've heard that saying that's like um, public health is doing its job when nobody hears about yes. it. <laughs> yeah, public health is most successful when no one knows about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I changed my saying. opinion on that a little bit, though, because now I think we're seeing, you know, all of a sudden people are like looking to epidemiologists, infectious disease experts, and going like, oh, I've never heard from you before. So I'm not sure if I trust you. So I think I, I've kind of changed my opinion on that. I think public health needs to as a field, which is a very broad field, I don't even know how you put lines around what is the field of public health. But I think public health needs to be a little more clear about what we do and why it's so important so that when things like a pandemic happen, we can say, you know, we've been researching this for years. We've been working on this, like, you know, instead of just all of a sudden being like, trust us, we know what yeah. we're talking about. I, 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 agree with that. I know I totally see what you're saying. I think we need to advocate for ourselves and advocate for our work better because if we did X, Y, and Z, this is why you're not seeing any disease in your community or whatever, you know, I mean, that's obviously the most grand way of thinking about something, but, um, but yeah, you're, I agree. You got to advocate for the hard work that we do because all anyone working in public health is working their butt off <laughs> at all times. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nina, for joining me. And this has been such an interesting conversation that has touched on so many different topics. And I've learned a lot about, um, digital health and, and primary health care and um, health system strengthening. So thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. It's been super fun.
Thank you so much for joining for the second episode of the Risk Factors podcast. For those who are interested, in the description of the episode, I will include the link that Nina mentioned for the WHO recommendations on digital health interventions for health system strengthening. See you next time.